0: Actually, our other guest has sh- showed up. Let me just bring him in, Keith. If you'd like to hang out for another thirty minutes or twenty minutes or so, and let's talk to James. James, welcome to the show. Hello,
1: hello. Sorry, I was here the whole time. I was listening on entropy. I wasn't sure when I was supposed to jump in. My apologies. Oh no,
0: I, I, I'm sorry. I, I I thought we were you were just going to come in for the second hour. I I, I apologize for that. Well, welcome. Welcome to the show. Thank Uh, you. You've written a few pieces over the years for Countercurrents, and you wrote a piece recently on George Grant. He was a Canadian political philosopher, and you are Canadian. And uh, you talked about where he went wrong on some things in his book, Lament for a Nation. And near the end, you had a, a, a rather interesting distinction and it got me thinking, and it's actually relevant to the stuff we were discussing earlier about you, you know, genetics and eugenics and so forth. So this is a piece at CounterCurrents where George Grant went wrong. It was recently published. And I'm going to read a paragraph uh, because it's an interesting distinction. Grant's nationalism shares little in common with the nationalism that I advocate. The usual terminology is civic nationalism against ethnic nationalism. The communitarian against individualist or innate nationalism might be more accurate terms. Grant's nation is a shared experiment in the practical application of a certain political philosophy. As none are innately part of it, it survives for only as long as its political and ideological traditions persist and command loyalty. It aligns with the conservative outlook that values traditions and restraint over freedom. In the individualist conception okay that's his conception which you're calling and then you talk about an individualist conception in the individualist conception the nation is an innate biological group united by shared blood with religion culture and language relegated to secondary importance nationhood is the innate property of an individual rather than something imposed externally through socialization into a community the nation can survive in a state of political dormancy without consciousness, as many nations throughout history, from Letts to the Arabs, have. Okay, I think this is interesting, and I and I wanted to pose a couple questions here. When you talk about the individualist conception of the nation, you're talking about a group, though.
1: I was going to say all societies, though, are, are ultimately groups. Every every. Ideology at some level deals with the group, regardless of what it labels itself. The difference, I would say, is that the the sort of civic nationalism, it 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 creates the group, as it were. Yeah. The state kind yeah. of creates the group, whereas the in the in the ethnic conception the groups is simply pre-existing it's the individuals are united by their own innate traits not anything the government does to bring them together
0: yeah yeah so but but individuals come out of the group and they they carry their nationhood around with them it's their it's their genetic inheritance and and a certain cultural inheritance as well so i would i guess what you're calling an individual nationalism i would call an ethnic form of nationalism as opposed to a civic nationalism And and I do think the possibility of there being a nation that's politically dormant without consciousness is interesting. I I, I would say that in a way, that's what's going on with white people today. White people are objectively, you know, let's just talk, okay, let's talk about Americans, right? White Americans are a nation objectively. But as Sam Francis pointed out, subjectively, we're not a nation. We, we don't think of ourselves as a nation. We think of ourselves as individuals, cosmopolitans, and believers in the constitution and certain values and stuff like that. And so it's possible to be objectively a nation, meaning a people that's united by blood and history and as having a common language and things like that. And yet, not be aware of that very much, and therefore, if we're not aware of our nationhood, it, we can't p- be politically a nation. We are, we're sort of politically dormant. Is that is that what you're saying here?
1: Yeah, and I give the example of of Let's, Latvians and Arabs. So I was I was re uh, I've I finished now, but it's an excellent book on the history of the the Arab Revolt, which is the the Arab what is it the Arab Awakening. And one of the interesting things is that when he starts the book, the Arabs had no sense of themselves as a as an ethnic group at all.
0: No, who's the author of this? I'm sorry. It was
1: written in 1938, published in 1938, I think. It was written by a Christian Arab. Okay. Uh, but he he start, he starts before the before what was his name? Muhammad Ali took over Egypt. He starts the book all the way back then and goes all the way up into 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 the 1930s. Uh-huh. George Antonius wrote it. But one of the okay. things I found interesting was that when he wrote, when he, at the part of the book where he starts in the 19th century, the Arabs had no sense that they belonged to an Arab nation at all. And if you look, you can you can point to plenty other examples of this. If you, if you went to 15th century Latvia, probably the Latvians had no sense that they belonged to a Latvian nation. Even Korea, which was an ethnically homogenous state for, basically for its entire history, up until you get into, even into, basically into the 20th century, late 19th century at the earliest, Koreans had no sense that they owed a political loyalty to the Korean nation. They knew they were Korean and so on, but they there was no political consciousness there.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. that That's interesting. And so let's go a little further in this. So you you go on, communitarian nationalism is as old as the state. Rulers have relied upon myths and traditions to legitimize themselves for as long as they have commanded those outside of their immediate clan to whom they have no inherent emotional connection. Though it has ancient precedents, individualist nationalism rises out of the rationalizing processes of modernity as the state seeks a more solid basis for its identity and legitimacy than old myths and quaint traditions. Though the two of them are labeled nationalism, they directly oppose each other. The nemesis of innate nationalism is the civic nationalist state. Innate nationalism is inherently liberal. Okay, now what do you mean by that? And that's intriguing. Why why would be why would the the stubborn ethnic nationalism of the apolitical Koreans be liberal?
1: Well, I mean, in it's innately liberal in the sense that it, it aims to sort of strip the state. Of its of its, I not totally strip it of ideological commitments, obviously, since there's a commitment to the nation, but basically reduce the state to just being an extension of the nation rather than something that that um, rather than something that creates the nation.
0: Um, right. Okay. Yeah, I, I can see that. So it it's it tries to make the state an instrument of the nation. It it subordinates the state. To the nation, rather than you know, conceiving of the state as like a, I don't know, a dynasty or an elite that that basically creates the nation to its own specifications. And so it, so it, you're talking it, about popular sovereignty.
1: No, yeah, that too. But also, if you, if you look at the history of nationalism in the 19th century, nationalism, for example, was closely was closely interconnected with liberalism, because they were both sort of these these movements pushing against. There was sort of a push against the sort of old monarchial state and an attempt yeah. to create a sort of more rational basis for the state in in a, in a sort of unified, homogenous population and to sort yeah. of get rid of a lot of these sort of old state traditions, I guess you could say.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so you continue. As the information age advances, the civic state necessarily grows more authoritarian. On the internet, one can better express himself and pursue his own passions. But as men gather into like-minded groups, consensus breaks down. Its epistemic partition sets in. The power of civic institutions to unite the population around common ideals fades. Censorship is the order of the day. Artificial intelligence advances so rapidly that films, which once would have cost hundreds of millions of dollars, might soon be generated in a few hours using text prompts. No common culture can persist among a diverse population under these conditions. The civic state must therefore stretch its tentacles into every aspect of life and snuff out every cry of dissent if it is to maintain any semblance of consensus. Yeah, I I, I do think that there is definitely that that's that's a, a dynamic that that's underway. Um, I, I, sorry, go ahead.
1: Yeah. No, I would agree. And I would say this is what you've been seeing the past few years, where the 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 sort of diversity, equality, inclusion, which, which really in some form goes back quite a lot longer than that term, that sort of civic religion, if you would, it used to be able to survive, it used to be able to get by with a lot less censorship, because it wasn't really threatened, right? I mean, you, if, you, yeah. if you didn't like it, you couldn't get on the TV, you could, you could maybe... Start some show on a public access channel, but five thousand people might watch it. There wasn't really much opportunity for, for dissent to be heard, even though it wasn't—it wasn't really suppressed in any way. As as people are better able to express themselves through the internet, and as things like, like Twitter become the town square and you know, sort of old newspapers and legacy media dies, it's no longer possible to control the the population in the way it used to be. In order to where where once you could have simply relied on sort of soft pressure, the, the stick replaces the carrot. You need you need to you need to censor people from Twitter, you need to make sure that only certain things are heard on YouTube if you're going to maintain any common culture at all. And this is this is sort of the, 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 the problem that the state faces. I would say, interestingly, the, the sort of founder of neoconservatism, the guy who's not father of neoconservatism, but the guy, the, the, what's his name, Fukuyama, the end of history guy,
0: yeah. who said
1: that, you know, we're all going to go to liberal democracy. There's a fascinating interview he gave a few months ago, where he was on a live stream, and he said, int- I thought this was very interesting, that free speech is an outdated 19th century idea that just mm-hmm. doesn't work in the information age anymore. And in, in a sense, if you're living in a if you if if you have a diverse population, especially, he, he's not he's not totally wrong. I, I don't yeah. think there's really any future for liberalism outside of a, a a very ethnically homogenous state where people are sort of naturally inclined towards a common culture.
0: Yeah, yeah. We can really only afford freedom if we're already mostly on the same page, anyway. Otherwise, freedom, maximizing freedom among people who have almost nothing in common is just going to cause everything to fall apart. The, there, there is no center that will hold, right? Everything will fly apart. Yeah, so liberalism, liberal, liberal governance practices presuppose a great deal of accepted unfreedom if you will, in, in, in the realm of culture. People are basically on the same page, culturally speaking. They're, they're very similar genetically speaking. And because they're bound together by so many factors like that, they can afford to have loose government. Whereas if they have very little in common that would hold them together, they can't in addition, have a loose form of government. It, it, they have to be clamped together because otherwise everything just flies apart.
1: And this is this is what we were talking about with Inania earlier, the idea that he basically, the, the, you know, and, and other people of his ilk who are kind of calling for this colorblind meritocracy, what they're basically saying is we need a police state. Um, yeah. And I, supp- I suppose if you're happy to live under a police state, that's fine. But I, I would much prefer to live in a high-trust society that isn't a police state, at least, at least
0: personally. Yeah. So the, the last two paragraphs have some really interesting things in it. So let me just continue. Psychic character is mostly an expression of genes. Innate nationalism will be the only liberal alternative to the totalitarian civic state once the full effects of the information age set in. A population united by shared genes expressed in the same environment can organically avoid epistemic partition and maintain a common culture without the heavy handed guidance of the state. The historical national state was a product of a biological revolution that followed the plague in Europe. A similar revolution might be needed to bring about the geno state, although, but, but through our own will. It may be necessary to reduce the genetic diversity of the populace below the level of any large state today through human cloning. The nuclear family will remain the norm, only a small portion of each generation need to be clones to achieve the desired effect. Now, I, I think this is fascinating. Now, it does run into the problem that I, I raised about Bronsky. Uh, I'm all for eugenics. It's got to be one of the things that we do when we when we when we gain it and want to keep it and want to sh- and want to make society better. But as an a desideratum, right? Once a society exists, I, I think this is completely correct. And yes, you would like to do things. And I, I'm, a, I'm a soft eugenicist, right? I, I don't believe in going around and being t- too too creepy totalitarian. That's contrary. That's just unwhite. But for instance, if you want to decrease the number of spiteful mutants in society, you have to create incentives so people have children when they're younger. That would be a, you know, that would solve a lot of that problem. But in my white nationalist manifesto, I talk about genetic similarity theory. And I, you know, I, the, the way I phrase it is that the problem of politics largely can be understood as, as, as the problem of, of creating a harmonious society. Uh, harmony between people, and what people are the most harmonious that we observe. The, the people that are most in sync with one another are identical twins. And genetic similarity seems to be at the basis for pro-social emotions, for just sort of basic understanding of one another on, on a you know, pre-verbal level. You know, you, there, there's like a, a vibrational level of, of, of community that you share with people who are close to you that's pre-verbal, but it's very, very powerful and real. And there, there are these studies that show that Denmark and Iceland are the happiest societies in Europe and and, and indeed, in by some measures, the happiest in the world. And they also are the most genetically homogeneous, where on average, everybody is basically as related to one another as a fourth cousin. So if if you really want to create a harmonious society, yeah, you would want to increase genetic unity, genetic homogeneity, not genetic diversity. And this, of course, is why diversity is not a strength. It's a curse, even if you just have one race in a society, it's going to be less happy and harmonious. The more genetic diversity there exists among white people in that society, which I think is something that we really need to grapple with a bit. May I, so, I, I, I interject. Yeah, go ahead.
1: Uh, I was. There's a few things there. One is the the how do you win? I I think that to win you have to dangle utopia in front of people.
0: That's true. Yeah, I,
1: I think this is how you win. This is why I, I I think I like Nathan Kaufness. I think a lot of his writing is really good. But I think the basic problem he, he's going to butt up against is that the idea of the blank slate is attached to it? kind of utopia it's attached this kind of leftist or whatever you want to call it vision that you can be whatever you want even even not only does race not matter even sex doesn't matter if you want to be a woman enough you can become a woman if a woman wants to become a man she can become a man and there's this sort of you can be anything you want utopian idea attached to it and as long as people have that utopian mind they're not going to accept emotionally they will not accept anything that says this isn't possible so in order to in order if you want if you want hereditarianism to take off you have to connect it to some vision of utopia you have to make people want it to be true i mean if someone's a true believer in woke a true believer that men should be able to become women and race doesn't matter and you you convince that you genuinely convince them of hereditarianism they're just going to become very depressed um they're, they're not going to know what to do with it. They're not they're not suddenly going to become uh, some sort of advocate of hereditarianism. You have to connect these this this sort of factual vision with sort of a, a sort of moral vision of utopia. You have to say this this is true, and only is it true it's good because it leads to some kind of utopia.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I would agree with that. Yeah. So dangling utopia out there is one of the ways that we can we can win and i do think that it is not unappealing to dangle iceland or denmark out there as models why wouldn't you want a society that is very homogeneous very high trust very prosperous and and and, and you know full of people who are on average, more beautiful and more healthy and more intelligent than the people around you today. That's the kind of thing that I think that we we should talk about. And again, there are people who want to treat eugenics as some kind of evil, totalitarian, dystopian idea. It doesn't, doesn't have to be that way. In fact, we, we we can make it very, very gentle. And in a way, it's it's very, very easy to get people on board with it this is why it's got to be censored, by the way. It's so easy to convince intelligent, open-minded people of eugenics in five minutes of argument that it has to be <laughs> it has to be smeared and it has to be censored. But one of the best arguments for eugenics is simply to point out that every society promotes some kind of breeding pattern. It's just inevitable. It's going to be subtle. It's going to be accidental in many ways, but it's going to be real. And if it is inevitable that every society is going to promote certain kinds of people being born and discourage other kinds of people from being born, and there's no way around that, doesn't it seem obvious that to be responsible, we have to look into what's being promoted currently, and then try and make sure that we are promoting, on average, good trends rather than bad ones. And so eugenics doesn't become something that um, you entertain right? as a possible thing. It's already here. It's already real. The only question is, is the selective breeding regime in your society eugenic or dysgenic? That's the only choice. It's not to encourage certain breeding patterns or not. Every society inevitably does that. The only question is, Are we making a better world or a worse world in the process? And we've got to own up to that fact that it's inevitable, it's real, it's happening, and take control of it to the extent that that's even possible.
1: I would agree. And I, I get to back to the point you asked about individualism. I would also point out that if you want an individualistic society, a society based off individual rights or something, this is something that only really comes from a society that's racially homogenous. If you if you look at where, where liberal societies developed, they developed in very homogenous northern European countries. I mean, there's, there's an interest. I remember, what's his name? John Derbyshire once wrote about about migration in Britain and this ridiculous myth that Britain's a country of immigrants. He said, when I was growing up, Scotsmen were exotic. Exactly. Uh, and that's the kind of society that you get, you get liberal values, you get uh, it's classical liberal in the sense of, of individualism, you don't get these values in multicultural states. In a, in a multicultural state, you, you have to unite people and you have to do it through some way that you have to do it through some sort of shared ideology, which you have to impose on people like Austria-Hungary, or like the Russian Empire, or like one of these other states, you have to impose some sort of shared values and institutions on people, whereas in a, in a homogeneous society, you simply don't, and that's where you get liberal society. And I, mm-hmm. I, was, I, was, I was reading a very interesting, one of the interesting things about the Arab Awakening book was that throughout it, um, George and, uh, Antonius, he contrasts what he calls Western collectivism with the individualism of the Arabs. This was very interesting to me because this isn't, isn't a way we're used to thinking, right? We don't yeah. really think of the West as a collectivistic society. And I realized that what he's actually referring to is what we might consider collectivism. The Arab to him is individualistic in the sense that he's, he's stubborn and he's tribal and he, you know, he's not really a a social animal apart from inside his tribe. He has trouble getting along with his fellow citizens. And he, he, when he says Arab individualism, he doesn't mean this to sort of pump, even though he's an Arab nationalist, he's not doing this to pump the Arabs up or, or, you know, stroke his uh, his sort of ethnic ego. He's actually pointing to this as an example of why Arab nationalism uh, has struggles um, as opposed to the West, where we're collectivistic and all get along. And I wrote a whole essay about this, which you can find on my substack. But I, what I thought was interesting about it was that what really makes for a collect a cohesive society is this sort of, I guess you could call it individualism, which ultimately comes from having a, a homogenous society without a sort of clan structure, like the Arabs have. And the reason Westerners tend to treat other people as individuals and to think of ourselves as individuals and so on is because we live in these homogenous societies with low rates of consanguous marriage um, where basically every stranger is as equally related to you as every other stranger and is is, is related to yourself. And that's what makes for a, a... a cohesive society, I would say, and what makes for a free society ultimately is a cohesive society. Because mm-hmm. at the end of the day, every government is, is as authoritarian as it has to be, or else it's replaced by one that is.
0: Yeah, I, I like that. Uh, that's that's a nice um, that's a nice formulation. Every government is as authoritarian as it has to be, and the more homogeneous your society, the less the government has to be in order to keep people from falling apart, from flying apart. Yeah. I, we have a uh, I want to read the last paragraph here, and then we have some super chats, and we'll we'll go over time if if that's okay with you. I apologize for the miscommunication about oh, no problem. Uh, when you to. begin. Yeah, so okay, where is your article? I have so many tabs open, okay, you you conclude with the greatest obstacle to the success of nationalists in this century is their own ideological confusion. The traditionalist and communitarian ideas that infest nationalist journals are the sign of a confused and aimless movement that grasps desperately for whatever ideological weapons it can find. For nationalism to take its rightful place as the liberal alternative to the totalitarian civic state, it must first understand itself as such. You want to... uh, expatiate a bit on that sure uh, I, I think you know. i
1: think one of the big things that does drive people right words today is the free speech issue there's yeah. a, a very interesting study by i forget his name uh Kierkegaard, like the philosopher that's his name um yeah. danish guy that runs a a, a hbd journal and they did a study on which political issue political issues and and right and left one of the interesting things they found is that among older people free speech is negatively associated with right-wing views. Uh, among younger people, it's the complete opposite. If we think if we think of politics, politics, political sort of views or partisan affiliations come in packages, right? There may not be any any innate reason why these ideas are connected together. It's it's kind of based off society and so on. But sort of part of the right wing package, if you would, among younger people, which is not the case for older people, is is sort of free speech. You could even say liberal norms, if you wanted. Um, and what we really should be fighting for, I don't think, is is – I'm not a big fan of the post-liberal thing or the, the the anti-liberal thing. I had a debate with Duchesne about this over at, at CEC. Um, I think the – I think what we should be aiming for ultimately, as we aim for a homogeneous society, really should be a free society. It should be a society that that to get rid of the censorship, to get rid of all these these sort of things, because ultimately, if society continues to become more diverse and it continues, you know, technological progress continues, AI continues, we're going to have a situation where eventually you won't be able to say anything. Everything will be censored to hell. Um, most of our interactions will be on the internet, and. We're, eventually the united states is going to converge first with russia and then it will get even worse and eventually it will converge with china uh if if you know if globalism continues there won't be any room for any kind of uh free speech at all i don't think eventually and ultimately what we should be fighting for is is for our people of course for the race but also for for a society where we can be free where we don't have to have this uh endless censorship that's become so obnoxious
0: yeah, I'm I'm certainly a free speech believer and not just an instrumental believer in free speech, but I think freedom of speech has to be a feature of every good society that we want to build. So I, I can definitely agree with that. I, I am not I'm I'm a traditionalist in the Gainanian sense to some extent, with certain caveats based on Jan Osman, but I'm not a traditionalist in the sense that I'm reactionary who thinks, oh, you know, if we could only roll back things to before women voted, or if we could only have the Habsburgs back, or there are all kinds of sort of charming versions of that, that I just think are kind of cranky. And uh, yeah, so go ahead.
1: The, well, they're, they're charming because we look back at them nostalgically, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, was the Habsburg Empire, in a lot of ways, that had the same problems we have today, or it was this multicultural empire? I yeah. Think, I think, yeah. in a way, when you look at yeah. what's going on in, in Europe with the rise of, in America too, we're almost reliving the sort of rise of nationalism from the 19th century.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um,
1: I think that I think that's a big driving force. I, I don't have a terrible lot of sympathy for these things. I'm I'm a great admirer of the 19th century in any ways. I, I suppose I'm a traditionalist in that. I I, uh, I have an interest in uh, the ancient world and, and so on. Yeah. but I I, uh, I I wouldn't say I'm a traditionalist. The sense at all. Uh, mm-hmm. I would say the the sort of nationalism that I'm interested in is 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 I would say is more it's more of a modernist nationalism. It's, it's, it's more sort of akin to what Ataturk did, where he sort of unite, you united people on blood and soil and, and get, and uh, sort of progressive even. Uh, right. You could say, and I, I think, I think ethnic nations are inherently, are the ethnic nationalism is a more progressive concept in a, in a way than, than, than the civil yeah. nationalism. Because when you have a nation that's based off, of shared ideology, ideology or whatever, it people obsess over things like founder's intent yeah right? because yeah. it's something that you you do being like being an american at least if you believe in proposition nationalism is something that you do it's a set of ideals you embody in principles and whatever whereas being a german for example is just something you are and yeah. there's room for change there there's room for dynamism um no i don't think anyone in germany cares what Otto the great intended for the country right uh whereas americans yeah. have traditionally been sort of captured but they, they've been sort of trapped by their own traditions in a way which you know where they're, they're obsessed with things like founders intent and so on which is yeah. funny because america if you read i mean i think it was john Jay wrote about how great it was that america was united by common blood and so on america was not originally intended to become to be a proposition nation but it kind of became
0: oh yeah yeah exactly well keith do you have thoughts about this do you want to come back in uh, about what
2: specifically
0: well, any of any of this, you've been so patient. You've been just listening to us. Oh, I agree with all of it. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, I, I'm I'm a believer in popular government, popular sovereignty, the mixed constitution. And most of these things do come about post French Revolution. I mean, these things existed in antiquity, but in terms of present-day Europe, most of these things came about post French Revolution. I, I am not a fan of dyna- dynastic ideas of politics—the idea that you know a nation can be a dowry gift and be passed back and forth. You know, this this is madness. Uh, you now you can look back on on your history nostalgically if you're Portuguese or Spanish or whatever, and. Have a, a connection with that. I don't think it's any way to run a railroad today or a country. And I, I, I believe in in popular sovereignty. Now you might have a mixed economy with a constitutional monarch. I think the best monarchies have sort of um, nationalized themselves in the course of the 19th century, anyway. But there is there is a there is a question that Joe Sobrin would ask. Uh, he would ask. Leftists, is there a society in which you would be a conservative? Right. Yes. I, and, I agree with this. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I, I like to ask, I like to ask people on the right, is there a society in which you would be a leftist? And absolutely, I would be a leftist in Europe anywhere be- before seventeen eighty nine, basically. You know, I'd be a leftist in Europe in eighteen forty eight. And uh, I, I do think that nationalism, especially ethnically defined nationalism plus pop with with popular sovereignty, is 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 what I would like to have. And you know, there there are various little differences that you can have from country to country, but but th- that's the core thing. And that's a that's really a nineteenth century progressive idea in my view.
1: I, I would agree. Um uh what was I gonna mention? Oh, about the about the genetic mutational thing, I would highly recommend two Substacks: Werkat W E R K A T and Arctotherium. Arctotherium's also been published at Aporia about the baby boom. They've written two. um, They've both written some very good pieces, uh, sort of refuting the mutational load theory. So there, Mm -hmm. there, there is very good evidence that political views are hereditary. I think twin studies have them at at least fifty percent. Yeah. but there is very little evidence that mutational load is causing leftism. In Ar- Arctotherium in particular, he, he breaks it down using several historical can, examples. Can you, can you
2: repeat the first site you named? I'm actually curious to read that. Uh, W-E-R-K-A-T. Okay. Uh,
1: he has one essay on it, and Arctotherium too, where he, he breaks it down. I, I won't go into it now, but for example, Quebec has the same amount of mutational load as Scandinavia. Um, whereas France is much less, and yet Quebec basically preserved the ancient regime into the 1960s.
0: Huh. Interesting. Anyway, I I just wanted to talk about this because I I wanted to get clear. Your your article it's very very clearly written, and I and I very much like your writing. But there are some things I I just wanted to get clarification about. You know, for instance, calling it liberal and individualist, and there because these are. Concepts that obviously can be. They're that break. are abused
1: though, aren't they? Because yeah, someone yeah. like Hanania will say, Oh, I'm an individualist. I'm against you, 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 you racists, you collectivists. But ultimately what we want is a is a is a is a more individualistic system because we think that the state itself should be should be uh, the people of the citizens should be unified by their own individualistic characteristics, whereas he wants to impose a sort of common state on them from above.
0: Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I I I agree with that. Years ago, I was talking about individualism and high-trust society with people, and I think it's in an interview that I did, where basically people people wonder about individualism and conformity, right? Yeah. And uh, there's actually a lot of conformity in highly individualist societies and highly liberal societies, and there has to be because again if you if you don't have internal informal ways of being on the same page with other people that things that harmonize you things that you're carrying around within you that harmonize you with the people around you then you're going to have to have external things to harmonize you and and so you get with greater diversity with less of a common culture you get more of a state that's 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 necessary and one of the reasons why individual societies are so highly scalable and high trust is that individualists sort of carry around within them a, uh, how to put this, you know, in, in a clannish society, you you can only trust people who are close to you within your clan. You, you go to places like Somalia and you meet a stranger and and they will they will go through their genealogies. To try and find out how close they are, if you're a friend or an enemy. Every every stranger you encounter is a potential enemy until you certify that they're somehow trustworthy, and it and it's an external form of certification having to do with clannishness. Whereas in an individual society, you can pretty much be a, can pretty much be assured that everybody you meet is somebody you can cooperate with. You know, and they, they 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 carry around that certification within them, if you will, and it has to do with you know individual conscientiousness and stuff like that and And so it, it's possible for there to be a lot of conformity and sort of you know warm and fuzzy communitarian attitudes within an individual society. in fact they they sort of go together to make I, them. Agree. Yeah,
1: I, I would also add the point though that this 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 puts us at something of a disadvantage against sort of more clannish outsiders within our own. Yeah, space. because we're used to we we're used to treating everyone as individuals. Because and of course there's genetic reasons for that. We we you know Western Europe people are all basically equally closely related to each other outside of the nuclear family and they're homogenous so so we're used to treating other people like individuals we're used to trusting strangers and this makes us it makes us very powerful uh sort of on the geopolitical stage western countries are the most powerful because they are the most they are the most um well, the most high trust, they're not the most monstrous, yeah. more unfortunately. Uh, it makes us very powerful in the geopolitical stage, but within our own nations, it puts us at something of a disadvantage because we're, we're simply not used to acting tribalistic. We're not used to yeah, acting yeah. clannishly. Uh, and, and, you know, we, we sort of get taken for a ride by these these uh, these other people.
0: Yeah, these parasite tribes, as John yeah. Robb calls them. Yeah. Uh, the, the reason why we can create these huge institutions that are highly... Successful is is because of the individualism, whereas in more clannish societies, there are only a few people that you can trust, and it's 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 has to do with with uh, with clan bounds. Whereas, uh, so you could never you could never create a corporation in Iraq that could employ thirty thousand people like you can in the United States, or just because of the clannishness of society you know, the, what would immediately develop in these would be little cancers, uh, little sort of ethnic cancers, little little mafias in, inside these things. Whereas we, we seem to have less of that in, in the West. Uh, but of course, because we've opened our gates, we're now being subverted by these clannish people because they have these dual ethical codes. And one of the things that's most harmful about liberal individualism as an ideology now, and especially in the form of you know the, the ideological you know, i'm colorblind kind of stuff is that it makes a virtue out of being blind to collectives so yeah. we we self righteously view these people as as individuals like us and if we're even suspicious that they're not playing that game we suppress that uh, however, I do think that a reaction will set in because one of the things about white people is, is that we can get really, really moralistic about people who aren't playing along with society. We certainly saw that in the, in the crazed hatred, you know, online for, you know, vaccine skeptics and things like that. You, you aren't with the program, you know, you, you should die, you know, that kind of stuff. So... Um, there, there is a possibility that eventually when white people are, when we become sufficiently aware that these other groups within our societies are cheating by our standards, by our rules, there can be a, an extremely powerful flip to a kind of moralistic intolerance. The trouble is, though, that we seem to be moralistically most intolerant to people who are genetically similar to us. (laughs) But I I think we can stretch it to these outside groups if we have to.
1: I I think so. Um, What was I going to say? I I, I do think so. And I also think that one of the interesting things Putnam found is that – I mean, this this is both good and bad because it's good because it means whites are sort of – becoming aware that these other people can't be trusted, but it's also sort of sad that we're losing our social trust, which is that within, as society becomes more diverse, this is one of the things Putnam found in his research, the ones that he uh, he sat on for years before finally publishing, was that even among coethnics, social trust declines. So yeah. it declines generally uh, as you bring a more, more, a more diverse population into your country.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we have some super chats here, questions, comments. Uh, folks, if you'd like to send those along, do so soon. We're over time and we should probably wrap up fairly soon. So, Mirth Respector has donated seven lemons. Thank you. Glenn has donated one library token. Infant mortality has collapsed around the world since the 1960s. How come Spiteful Mutant isn't a worldwide phenomenon affecting all races and ethnicities on the planet? That's an interesting question. Do either of you gentlemen have any thoughts about that?
1: Yes, it's not. It's not. It's not real. So okay. yes, genetic mutation is increasing. No, there is not good evidence that it, it leads to increased leftism.
2: Okay. Um, yeah, even even if it were real, that is actually a, a good point to to undermine the you know the totally genetic determinist account of things. Because as I mentioned earlier, right? I mean, you can have spiteful mutants in your society, but if you if you have a society that's uh totally authoritarian and, and has a lot of taboos, ideas, uh those people won't be able to wield as much influence. So I think that you know, again, mm-hmm. undermines the idea that you can totally separate genetics from ideas when you're trying to explain why things are to yeah. the way
1: they are. I would also add that Bronsky has this sort of very foolish idea that people are born with with fully formed ideologies almost. Um <laughs> You know, if you have enough genetic mutation, you're basically born a, a trans flag waving leftist. Whereas, what, what the way it, I think the way it really works is that you're born with certain inclinations that incline you towards certain ideas and positions and, and partisan groups, which in a different society may manifest in a completely different way.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, the the same genetic profile in the Middle Ages might. End up being Saint Thomas Aquinas, and today he might be have a, a trans flag a, a, and uh, be working for an That's NGO. Not you mean to Saint Thomas Aquinas? I'm, no, but, no. <laughs> I mean, but, you know, I'm, I'm I'm just saying, Aqu- Aquinas was, was was sort of a nerdy guy. Let's just say he was kind of a yeah. nerdy guy. And uh, you know, nerdy guys in the Middle Ages became became scholars and saints, and nerdy guys today well you know they'll do weird things to try and get respect okay i I do, I do
2: think there are still many idealists on the left that aren't they're totally for the wrong reasons you know they're not totally motivated by spite there are still people that occasionally come over to our side from leftism that always had good motives but just didn't for whatever reason some of the reasons that confidence outlines that we were talking about earlier didn't find anything very intellectually appealing on on the right, so it is very reductive yeah. to say that you know all leftists have this this genetic biological motivation. I mean, I don't think someone like Gavin Newsom is like a, a spiteful mutant, right? But he has very damaging ideas, and and you know there's yeah. complex reasons why. Yeah, why you know, really Newsom is actually yeah.
0: Newsom's actually very eugenic looking and has a large, right. attractive family. Uh, you know, it's it's not that, yeah um so maybe next time is donated three dollars he says i watched starship troopers yesterday and noticed the 1997 release was four years prior to 9-11 it's perfectly time to have people to volunteer and fight the bugs post 9-11 well come on uh well but uh, well, there's been a lot of, a lot of starship troopers talk and memeing recently which is very entertaining i i wrote a review of starship troopers a few years ago i've uh I, I am fond of that movie. Uh, I, I'm a defender of Starship Troopers. Um, Black Pigeon Pilled writes in and says, what, what is Keith's view on the ballot box? Is Ireland or any country in Europe, for that matter, going to solve things through voting?
2: Well, I think, you know, electoral politics is one avenue we have. It's something we can use. I mean, that doesn't mean that I think, you know, the next election we're all going to uh, get nationalist parties into government. Um, but like I said, it's a tool campaigning in elections is is a rate is a way to raise awareness. Uh, even if if we can't totally win elections, you know, getting politicians into power is is something that helps us in in variety of ways. So I mean, I don't I don't see how we can forego electoral politics. Uh, obviously, the the meta politics is important as well. But you know, ultimately, we want power, and right now, the the most immediate way to access that is is to try and. Have people in in positions of political power through elections, right? Yeah. Uh, if I that uh,
1: was the question was directed to Keith, but if yeah. I can add something, I yeah. would also point out the AFD looks like it's going to become the second biggest party in Germany, uh, and I know people mm-hmm. in that party who are who are very based. Um,
0: so do and, I. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and, and in 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 the Netherlands, Geert Wilders uh, won the last election. So I I I don't think you should write off elections at all. I think I think it's absolutely possible to win them.
0: I I would agree with that. Uh, we have to use a diversity of means, and electoral politics is definitely one of those. So Willow the Wind, Willow the Wild. I'm sorry, has written in and he says I noticed academic agents theory does seem to have a purpose. It is a kind of kicking away the ladder for the current zeitgeist. Historically, this value-free calculation of power seems to be followed by a transition to another zeitgeist. It was the case during and after the French Revolution. I'm not sure I'm getting that. Keith, do you have any thoughts on
2: that? Well, if I understand them, they're saying it's useful in that it at least undermines the current establishment to show that these ideals that they base uh, everything on that they're, you know, it's just BS that they're cynically motivated. It it takes away some of the prestige of what they're doing, but I don't know. I don't even think that's accurate for, for this regime. I think it's, it's, uh, you know, the left are true believers. Um, The elites really do believe in, in racial egalitarianism, all this stuff. Uh, And I don't think it is the best challenge to it to say, uh you know all regimes throughout history and every political movement is is just motivated by cynical concerns and um yeah i, I don't think that is a, a good challenge to it. i think we're on firmer ground uh challenging it from a, a moral standpoint yeah i i agree go ahead I
1: may, yeah i i would all i think i think what he's trying to say is that past regimes basically used ideology to take over and um academic agent is sort of kicking the ladder out for us saying you can't do that sort of running cover for the regime as it were.
0: Oh, okay, I didn't understand that. This kind of cynicism I think is is dangerous because yeah, okay, you can train people to be cynical about journalists, right? We think we hate journalists enough, but we just don't hate them enough. You can treat people you train people to be cynical about politicians, but there comes a point where I think it's self defeating. For instance, and and I see this with my friend Greg Hood on Twitter. You know, he'll say things like, um, "There's always a state religion." The, the parody of, of of the line that he takes often is, "I want you to be extremely angry about something that I actually don't think is an injustice," and I would I would turn around and do to my enemies. It's like that's not consistent you know, we, we, we deal with moral outrage here. That's, that's the coin of the realm. That's our currency. That's what gets people going. And to immediately say, you know, I understand your moral outrage, but morality is all bunk. Just doesn't cut it. It's like, it's like pulling the football away from people as, as they're, as they're prepared to kick it. I think moral outrage is, is the coin of the realm. And, Pouring cold water on that is is not a good thing. So anyway, let's see. We have some more questions here. Black Pigeon Pilled wants to know, Keith, do you have any thoughts on Putin's endorsement for another four years of Joe Biden? You can uh, say,
2: comment on this, James, too. <laughs> I wasn't actually surprised at that. I mean, you know, obviously the, the media narrative is... Um... Trump was so pro Putin, but I mean, if you, if you look at the policies he took, I mean, he really, uh, increased arm's aid to, to Ukraine. Um, and I, I think Putin's point was that Joe Biden is, is more predictable than Trump. I think that makes sense as well as far as foreign policy goes. So, um, uh-huh. yeah, I didn't, I didn't find it super surprising or controversial. James, do you have any thoughts on that? Uh,
1: not, not a terrible number. Uh, maybe he's actually reading Anatoly Karlin, and he's, uh, He's uh he's going to become a libtard I don't know.
0: Uh so. <laughs> Um Black Pigeon Pill also asks, what is the origin of American zoomers becoming obsessed with Eastern Orthodoxy, especially given America's strong Protestant heritage? Are there many American zoomers who are Eastern Orthodox? I I wouldn't even uh, think it's that true. Oh, are there? Okay. It's, okay. it's sort of
1: a thing. Yeah, no, it's it's sort of like the Nick Fuentes convert to Catholicism thing. It, it it's kind of just a fad, I think.
0: Okay. Yeah, I think
1: it's driven by the fact that it's exotic. Oh, this isn't like my grandpa's Christianity. I can collect uh uh what are they called? Icons. I can collect Icon, icons yeah. and grow a beard yeah. and and uh they speak in a funny language. I, I think it's basically it's driven by the the sort of appeal of exoticism, I think. Oh,
0: okay. Okay, yeah. Well, let me just check quickly uh on entropy and see if there are any other super chats that have come in. Nothing. Well, well, folks, uh, gentlemen, let's wrap up. This has been a very enjoyable conversation. Uh, Keith, how do people follow your
2: work? Uh, well, currently, I guess I would prefer if people follow me on my subsects. So that's just keithwoods.pub. And, you know, all I need is, is an email. It doesn't cost anything. And, and you're signed up to my newsletter. That'll help me grow. And uh, yeah, I'll be publishing more frequently there. That's kind of a hub for my content. And uh, yeah, thanks for having me on. It's It's been an enjoyable conversation. Yeah, thank you. And James, how do people follow your work? You
1: can find me on Kinship, which is my substack, which is sjtucker.substack.com. And at Twitter on James Tucker, Nfld at Twitter.
0: Wonderful. Folks, next week, we'll be back uh, with another episode of Countercurrents Radio, and it will be our monthly book club. And the book club book will be F. Roger Devlin's book, Sexual Utopia in Power. He will be the guest of honor. I will be talking to him, as will Cyan Quinn. And if you would like to pose questions to uh, F. Roger Devlin, please uh, pick up the book. Also, a lot of people don't know it, but there's an audiobook version of Sexual Utopia in Power. You can get it at Countercurrents, uh, if you want to just zip through that during your commute in the coming week uh, and be prepared, uh, we also have the EPUB version uh, on sale if you just want to read through it very quickly and don't need to, don't want to wait for it to show up in the mail. And uh, I, I think it'll be a very, very uh, exciting conversation. Uh, this is one of our best selling books uh, before it was published as a book, the articles that it was based on uh, mostly from the Occidental quarterly were hugely influential uh, on the higher end manosphere. Uh, So this, uh, this fellow is a, is a pioneer uh, of, of our ideas. And uh, he's also very, very articulate and very learned. So it'll be a great pleasure to have him on. And I would like you all to join us next week for, for the countercurrents radio book club. And uh, until then, Keep reading Countercurrents, thank you.